Welcome back to another edition of Inside Asia, conversations with Asia's movers, shakers, thinkers, and provocateurs. I'm your host, Steve Stein, and in this episode, we visit the developing markets of South and Southeast Asia. Well, maybe visit isn't the right word. Most emerging markets in this part of the world remain locked down. This in contrast to China, Europe, and North America, where reopening is the theme of the day. It's a balancing act between containing COVID and resuscitating economies on life support. It's laudable that markets in this region are erring on the side of safeguarding the health and safety of its citizens. But it's equally concerning because in emerging markets, at least, poor economic performance can quickly lead to political unrest. To talk about the plight of emerging Asia, I welcome James Crabtree onto the program. He's an associate professor at the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy and a frequent commentator across news outlets here and abroad. In a recent foreign policy article entitled The End of Emerging Markets, James outlined many of his concerns as efforts are made to weather the COVID storm. James Crabtree, thank you so much for joining us on Inside Asia. You are author and an associate professor at the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy. Uh, I I see you as a bit of an observer of the geopolitical condition in South and Southeast Asia. How would you classify yourself and tell us a little bit about the research you're doing? classify myself as a recovering journalist and a pretend academic. So I was a journalist and policymaker for most of the last decade. Um, and I came to Singapore about four years ago to try and write the book that I wrote, The Billionaire Raj, about India. Uh, and I ended up doing that on sabbatical at the Lee Kuan Yew School and decided that my sabbatical was quite pleasant. And so they, they gave me a nice position on faculty. And I now spend my time teaching students here in Singapore, but also writing and researching about about things that attract my eye across the region, geopolitics, Mm. changing trade environment, and a whole host of other um, uh, uh, things like that. And and what's caught your attention in recent weeks and months? Stuck at home, so my attention has been firmly focused on the the pandemic and its aftermath, um, and that's been the thing that's interested everybody. So I've been looking at the in a sense, the, the reasonably positive response in East Asia, the, the less positive response in Europe and in particular in North America, uh, from the rise of contact tracing apps to the changing rules of travel uh, through to what this means for emerging markets mm. uh, and developed markets in, in different ways. So. Yeah, you recently came out with an article entitled The End of Emerging Markets. Could you tell us a little bit about what you mean by that? Over recent decades, we've become used to the idea that there is this category of what we call emerging markets, fast-growing superstar economies in the emerging world that are going to move very rapidly from the status of poor countries to middle-income countries to rich countries, in a sense mimicking the path taken by a very small number of preceding countries like South Korea um, or Singapore itself. Um, I think in the aftermath of the financial crisis, and particularly now in the aftermath of COVID-19, it's going to be much, much harder for any of these economies to grow anywhere near as quickly as they have done in the last 20 years during the high period of globalization. I mean, in a sense, China is the the bellwether here. China managed to sustain growth rates of 10% or above for nearly two decades. Almost no other country has ever managed to do that. But I think in the aftermath of COVID, with a much more, more challenging international environment with no following wind of globalization 
and with the pandemic to cope with, then emerging markets, particularly those with fragile states like India, are really going to struggle to grow anywhere near as quickly as they've been used to over the last couple of decades. You know, last year and leading up to COVID um, and in, in, in the wake of U.S.-China tensions, Southeast and Southeast Asia was enjoying a bit of an uptick, uh, some of uh, receiving some of the benefits of supply chains and uh, business shifting from China to Southeast Asia. Has that all been put on hold until we're through this crisis or do you anticipate that'll continue when things begin to settle? Everybody loses from the crisis. So what Mm -hmm. we're talking about is relative performance. Mm -hmm. So every country is going to be poorer because of COVID-19. So what we're trying to tease out is, relatively speaking, who's doing better and who's doing worse. I think if you look across Asia, it's pretty clear that East Asia, particularly the advanced economies, have done best. Um, There have been some stellar performers that we're all familiar with, Taiwan and South Korea in particular. The worst performers are in South Asia. They're also the poorest countries, India and Pakistan, are the sort of standouts there. And unfortunately, the pandemic is only getting worse in South Asia. Southeast Asia is caught in the middle, actually. Its performance on COVID has been reasonably good and has surprised a lot of people. You have countries like Thailand um, and Malaysia, both of whom uh, have done uh, really very well in terms of controlling the disease, but they also have vulnerabilities. They're highly globally dependent, so they're being hit hard by a trade shock. Thailand, along with the Philippines, very tourism dependent as well. So they're being hit hard by the steep drop off in global tourism. So Southeast Asia's position, I think, is is mixed. It's uh, perhaps better than some might have expected. But nonetheless, these are not rich countries, mostly like Singapore, and many of them are very poor countries like Myanmar. And so they're vulnerable to some of the same trends that you see in the poorer emerging markets as well. Yeah, I saw uh, last year, I think um, tourists to the region were something in the realm of 130 million people, uh, 130 million visitors. That, that's an extraordinary number. And I think it's doubled in the last five to seven years. Um, part of that was causing some problems, like in the little island of Boracay in, in the Philippines, where uh, Duterte actually saw it as such a problem that he shut down the island, had them clean it up before he allowed tourists back. Could it be that because the region is so dependent on tourism that this is a time for some of these governments to rethink their tourist policies and and, uh, come back out uh, after the the crisis with a different approach, uh, maybe a different thinking about what tourism should look like? It would be nice if that happened. Um, mm. Certainly, sustainability of tourism in in fragile emerging markets is a is a problem. Um, whether or not they're going to be able to do that, I, I don't know. The, the 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 attempts to reopen tourism, indeed to reopen travel of all sorts, has been much slower than I think optimists would have hoped. The idea that you're going to have travel bubbles and green lanes opening up to allow something akin to normal travel um, hasn't happened at all in Southeast Asia. It's working okay within Europe, uh, but that's about the only place that has any semblance of normality. And so I think that the focus of the authorities is going to be on, A, trying to find ways of opening up tourism at all, and then of convincing consumers that their tourism is safe and trying to reform tourist sectors to make them as COVID resilient as possible. Now, I think it's stretching the imagination a little bit, unfortunately, to think that that while they're doing that, they're also going to be able to make their tourism much more sustainable. So it might be that simply having less tourists makes tourism more sustainable for a while. Hmm. But I don't think that it's likely that emerging markets like Thailand or, or poorer countries like Nepal 
are suddenly going to be able to revolutionize their tourism sector to make it both safer for tourists from COVID and more environmentally sustainable. Nice though it would be to imagine that such a thing would be possible. You raise an interesting point, which is Europe is beginning to relax a bit and allow for some trans-border travel um, and tourism is picking up a bit. It is the summer months, yet the numbers in South and South Southeast Asia, at least, were far lower than Europe. But governments here appear to be even more conservative in terms of waiting it out or staying locked down or preventing foreign travelers from visiting. Why do you suspect Big superpowers have an advantage because they are, in a sense, giant internal markets that can work well within one another. So China's internal market, the U.S. internal market, and and Europe Mm. as a body. Um, The problem in Southeast Asia is the coordination between the countries is just much more difficult, and that's true in other regions as well. So to try and open up these travel bubbles, it's not just that you have to negotiate some sort of deal. You've got to work out what is the epidemiological status of your partner country and then you've got to share information and develop protocols what happens if there's an outbreak and and so you look at two countries like australia and new zealand now in theory you have two countries there that are in a very similar position they both have reasonably um small outbreaks or at least that was true in australia until what happened in melbourne um, over the last week Um, They also know each other very well. They've got high capacity states. They share lots of cultural links. So you'd have thought of any country, Australia and New Zealand would be able to make one of these travel bridges work, but they haven't been able to. And it doesn't really look like they are going to be able to for some period of time. So it shouldn't really surprise us, I think, that that if Australia and New Zealand can't do it, it's going to be very difficult for Singapore and Indonesia to do it. A country Mm -hmm. like Singapore is going to be very wary of opening up to a country like Indonesia that has a big outbreak because the last thing Singapore wants is to have more cases at home. But equally, it's proving difficult, let's say, for countries like Singapore and Japan um, to open up anything approaching regular travel. So I I think that the point is, it's just very, very difficult to come up with new systems that allow travel to reopen without the risk or without a very substantially heightened risk of COVID coming back across Mm. Um, in in airplanes. And and so I think at the moment, these policies are being run by epidemiologists who are very risk averse. Um, And maybe only later will the pressure mount on the economic side. So for instance, in tourism dependent countries like like Thailand and the Philippines to to in a sense, take a bit more risk and open up in order to save their tourism economies. Mm. You know, ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, this group of 10, for years have discussed about a free flow of labor between uh, member countries. Um, that, among other things, uh, it, of course, it, it never gained full traction and uh, lots of resistance. And the idea of autonomy is more precious than collaboration. Is it possible that by virtue of this crisis that ASEAN as an organization will reinvigorate itself, think about some of these policies uh, to allow for greater free flow of trade and services and tourism uh, going forward? What, what do you think? And it would be a nice idea, but I doubt it. I doubt it very much. ASEAN has played very little role in this crisis. In fact, it's been very striking as Southeast Asia attempts to reopen, that it's been a very bilateral affair. It's really Mm. just been national governments talking to one another. ASEAN, as far as I'm aware, has played very little role. And in actual fact, I think it's more likely that governments are going to try and reduce the flows of people that come 
uh, into their country. So take Singapore, for instance. So Singapore has a, has a, a large population of low-skilled migrant workers, um, which have been um, a problem in the COVID outbreak because they had a, a big COVID uh, um, uh, sort of bubble of cases amongst migrant workers. And so I think this is likely to lead Singaporean policymakers to think, well, we're probably not going to get rid of all of our migrant workers, but if there are ways in which we can lessen our dependence on migrant workers, for instance, by using more technology, then then we will do that. Certainly countries that have economies that are very dependent on migrant labor, uh, be that countries that send workers abroad and get remittances back, for instance, um, they are amongst the most vulnerable to the shutdown that, that has happened. And, and so the, the sort of mi migrant labor dependent countries, either because you need lots of migrant labor or you send away lots of migrant labor in exchange for remittances, um, th these are countries that have suffered and will be looking to try and see is there some way they can change their models to make them less dependent mm -hmm. in the short term, but also potentially in the, in the long term. Um, you know, you, you mentioned in your article uh, that uh, the IMF projections that show that emerging markets will contract around 1% uh, compared to about 6% in, in, uh, among developed markets. Um, that looks relatively better. Um, yet that 1% in, you know, low or, or rising income markets is a, a big, big hit. How do you suspect these these countries are going to bolster the cash required in order to carry out large infrastructure projects, uh, improve their healthcare uh, infrastructure, things of this sort? Uh, are are you suspecting the money will be coming in from foreign direct investment, private capital, or a series of monetary uh, policy decisions to somehow um, rejig or or revitalize these economies? It's just going to be less money to go around. So mm -hmm. again, if you take a country like Singapore, it's got huge cash reserves. And so it's spent nearly $100 billion trying to see its way through this crisis. If you are Indonesia, you don't have anything like that amount of money. Um, at the moment, at least international interest rates are, are as low as they've ever been. And so you still have the ability to borrow and you can get money from international donors. Uh, you may be able to get money from China. But basically, there will be, be less easy to, to raise money and you're going to have to reprioritize. So you're definitely going to have to spend more money on health because you're dealing with a pandemic. And that's going to mean less money to go around for other things. With so many positive strides made in recent years, it does sound like this is a, going to create a relatively impactful setback. Um, which are the markets that you feel are more resilient than others across Southeast Asia? Are there others that simply are going to use this time to regroup? and come out stronger? Or do you feel like it's pretty much across the board, a categorical hit? And it's just a matter of, of you know, um, if you will, tightening the bootstraps and getting through it until uh, economies recover. I mean, I think every, everyone, everyone loses, everyone's growth is going to be lower. Um, but some countries are going to perform better than others. And those tend to be the ones that have either managed to, um, to who managed to keep the pandemic under control initially, uh, and that have capable governments that are able to marshal resources to keep the pandemic under control in the future. And so, I mean, the obvious ones in Southeast Asia are Malaysia, Thailand, and Vietnam, which also happen to be some of the, the more prosperous of the emerging markets. They've mm. done reasonably well. Vietnam has had no deaths. Thailand and Malaysia have had very few. 
Uh, and I think Singapore will do just fine. Its pandemic record has been a little mixed. It's had nearly half as many cases as China, actually, at this point, if you believe the Chinese figures. But nonetheless, most of those are restricted to this outbreak amongst migrant workers. And so amongst the rest of the population, it's done reasonably well. Um, and, and so I think Singapore will emerge out of this um, fine just because it also has very deep pockets. So I think within Southeast Asia, you'll see a kind of division between the countries that have coped with this well and the countries that have coped with it less well, just as you well within Asia as a whole, with South Asia doing less well and, and countries like South Korea and Taiwan emerging, if not enhanced out of this, certainly with their reputations enhanced as competent leading world economies. Mm. You know, in, in the last decade, uh, private capital has been rallying around South and Southeast Asia, um, looking for ways to invest in, in early stage or, or mezzanine stage uh, companies. Um, a lot of complaints have come out that valuations are high, not enough deals, your typical private equity complaints. Now it looks like uh, the, the process and prospect of doing a deal is even harder. You can't get uh, cross-border, you can't meet with these organizations, you can't do the, the proper due diligence. Um, um, yet, um, <laughs> that money's not going away. Will, will this create opportunities for uh, governments to further reduce barriers to foreign direct investment? Or do you think they'll still remain uh, relatively strict um, because they just are concerned about uh, that type of, of money um, making its way into their markets? Yeah, I think this could become a spur to some forms of liberalization to FDI as governments try and desperately attract in some kinds of investment. You've seen this actually not in Southeast Asia, but in India, where the Modi government has uh, it, it sort of introduced some economic reforms in the aftermath of COVID to try and attract foreign investment. Whether or not they'll succeed in doing that, I'm not sure. But yes, it's interesting. I mean, you're right, Southeast Asia has had a little moment in the sun, particularly in areas like technology investment. So sort of venture, uh, venture investment into Southeast Asian tech has been relatively hot at the moment. As you say, I, I think the deal scene is going to be limited, at least in so far as the lockdowns continue, because um, investors want to go and meet founders and see companies and, and actually just sitting at home on Zoom and looking at spreadsheets isn't really enough to give them confidence that they are, in a sense, getting a good deal, particularly in an environment where valuations are very hard to judge. Um, you know, you have very low interest rate environments, but equally it's quite difficult to see how the pandemic is going to cut its way across different sectors. But in the, you know, in the medium term, when, when the lockdowns are over, there are clearly going to be, there's going to be bargains, there's going to be companies that, good companies that need short-term capital um, in order to get their way through the pandemic. Um, and so that will be one source of opportunity. It's also clearly going to be investable opportunities in growth areas, some of which will be related to the pandemic itself, um, whether that's online education or health technology or even manufacturers doing things like personal protective equipment or whatever it might be. There's going to be a host of new businesses that emerge trying to adapt to the change and changed environments of the, the pandemic and its associated effects. Mm. And so I imagine that if you're sitting in a private equity company or a, or a tech venture investor, you're thinking pretty seriously about how you get ahead of that. And that's also true for, you know, for companies that invest in distressed and turnaround assets. And that's not such a big category in this part of the world um, as it is in the US and Europe. But nonetheless, I'd have thought there'd be some, um, you know, some interest in, in that as well. But 
as you say, um, none of that's going to happen until people can start getting them on planes again, or very little of it is going to start happening until people can get on planes again. So I think we'll, we'll, we'll have to wait a while before before we see the shape of that uh, emerge. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because uh, if you look back, uh, up again, pre-COVID, and uh, a lot of the operations, a lot of the private equity effort was around uh, cross-border deals. So conjoining um, a large player in one market with a large player in another market, combining their resources, you know, streamlining the back end and, you know, improving the valuation. Um, it, it feels like now, because of what you said earlier on in our conversation, where there are probably more barriers that are going to be thrown up towards just traveling from one market to the next or trading or exchanging and, and more intra-government or, or internal reliance, that uh, those types of scalable deals might be at risk as well. That's true. I mean, and there's going to be more barriers in many different senses. So one of the big ones is you know, one of the big sources of money coming into Southeast Asia has been China. Um, so Chinese tech investors in Southeast Asia and also in India. Um, and, and that is going to be more difficult in future. So you've already seen Chinese investors into India, for instance, um, facing greater barriers and greater scrutiny. You've seen Chinese tech funded apps banned uh, in India, and that's a kind of precursor of things to come in a more geopolitically complicated world that will affect Southeast Asia uh, in various different ways, although Southeast Asia sort of tries to sit in between uh, the US, China, and India and play nice with everybody. But but nonetheless, there you know, we are entering a world in which there are going to be more barriers of various different types, geopolitical barriers, travel barriers, government barriers, regulatory barriers. And so all of those are going to provide more of a headache to uh, to investors. It's just not going to be an, as easy an investable environment as it has been for recent decades. Do you, do you think the current circumstances uh, create some interesting opportunities for China uh, to, to step in, to demonstrate its willingness to invest or fund or support some of those uh, uh, countries in Southeast Asia, like Myanmar and Cambodia and elsewhere, that even the, the lesser developed, uh, who are in need of this types of support, have may have resisted in the past, uh, but now would be more open and willing to accept Chinese capital. What are your thoughts? It, it creates a dilemma for Chinese policymakers because, on the one hand, China's economy, although it's doing better than everybody else's economy, and, and is not going to go into recession this year, uniquely amongst major world economies. Uh, nonetheless, it's still not doing very well. I mean, this was an economy that we used to understand that if it fell before uh, below six percent, then the world would end, and now it's barely growing at all. And so, Chinese China's government has to demonstrate to its people that it is investing at home and doing what it can to support China. And so it doesn't have anywhere near as much money to throw around as has had previously in the, the kind of salad days of the Belt and Road initiatives where they thought nothing of suddenly plowing another 10 billion into some damn project or transcontinental railway. On the other hand, China still has geopolitical ambitions and it has a lot of countries within what you might call the BRIO sphere, the, the countries that have signed up to the Belt and Road Initiative, which are going to need funding. Um, and already, China is the dominant source of that funding for many of them. Um, so a country like Myanmar, which you mentioned, as she doesn't like this very much, the pandemic uh, has only revealed the extent of Myanmar's funding reliance on China. And that isn't something that makes people in Myanmar or their politicians very comfortable. Mm. But yes, I mean, I think to answer your question, 
basically China will be able to find ways to support countries, not just in Southeast Asia, but in Central Asia and in Africa, providing emergency loans and funding and kind of cementing its position as the country that you go to when you're in trouble in many of these cases. And that will create opportunities. Whether or not they create good commercial opportunities, I don't know, but they'll certainly create geopolitical opportunities for China. Mm. With the Belt and Road Initiative, do you see any indication that they're starting to shift or change terms? Or is it just still business as usual, long-term financing, low interest rates, uh, trying to provide the same level of support uh, prior to the crisis? Well, actually, what's interesting about the Belt and Road Initiative is often it isn't long-term interest, long-term low interest rates. Actually, it's often, if not short-term, then certainly commercial rates. So some of these projects are funded very generously, effectively for free for geopolitical reasons, but quite a lot of them are funded at commercial rates uh, made by Chinese state-owned enterprises. And so that creates a challenge for, for China, which is that a lot of the countries to whom they have lent money are now no longer in a position to repay. So you have that challenge, which is China has provided debt to a whole bunch of countries that are now in crisis and so aren't going to be able to pay it back. So they need to renegotiate those debts. Equally, the projects that are underway are much more difficult to deliver in a COVID environment because you can't suddenly ship a whole bunch of Chinese workers to Myanmar or Laos or Zambia or wherever it might be. Um, Equally, there is going to be less deal flow on future BRI projects, even were China to want to fund them, simply because uh, the countries involved are going to be focusing elsewhere on trying to cope with their pandemics. Nonetheless, I mean, I, I still think that BRI has um, a reasonably bright future. Um, it, it's the central foreign policy vision of China's government. It's an important part of the way that China projects power uh, around its near abroad and increasingly everywhere else as well. But more importantly, as the geopolitical tensions between China and the U.S., and India and increasingly Europe flare up. In, in a sense, China's BRI links are, you know, those are its friends in the world. And so uh, while China's relations with other major powers like the US and India are, are deteriorating, then it will look to increase um, its ties with mm. those countries that are friendly with it. And, and that includes some in Southeast Asia and Central Asia and Africa. And so I think although in the short term the belt and road initiative has some challenges logistical challenges and financing challenges in the medium term uh it will continue and the vision of bri has never really just been to build infrastructure the vision of bri is much more far-reaching it's mm. a, a vision of a different different way of doing globalization which doesn't have the west at its heart but actually has china at its heart and so mm. what china has been trying to do is to use bri to create value chains and trading links which go back and forth from china yeah. with china at the sort of center of this and so that vision of a chinese-led globalization is going to be even more important to beijing in the aftermath of the crisis yeah, integration, I guess, integration with the economies and with the infrastructure and with the companies of China in order to create more of a network effect is, is my impression. Would that be right? Yeah, I mean, so China is trying to, um, you know, it wants to be able to integrate itself with countries that can provide it with energy or resources or where it can, um, you know, as the U.S. sent some of its older manufacturing industries to China, so China wants to send some of its older manufacturing industries to other parts of Asia and, and in a sense, create um, a, a, a global system with China at its heart. And so that, I think, is still is still the vision. That, that's what Belt the Belt Road is about, that if they can improve 
infrastructure and connectivity in various forms. Equally, China has different elements to its BRI, some of which will be more attractive in the aftermath of the pandemic. So it's always talked about this idea of a health silk road. Um, up until now, that has been, um, in a sense, an add-on but with very little meat on the bone. But in the aftermath of COVID, you can see that health technology, uh, the manufacturing of health equipment, um, government partnerships around health, this is going to be um, a, a huge area of potential bridge building between China and other economies because China has coped with the pandemic reasonably well, I think particularly viewed from Southeast Asia, whereas countries in the West have dealt with it very badly. And so you have this kind of curious position in Southeast Asia that some parts of the world have interpreted the pandemic very negatively towards China. India would be one. And again, I think also in Europe, you've, you've seen a hardening of views towards China. But in Southeast Asia, I don't get the impression that that's the case. I think actually people um, and governments in Southeast Asia are you know, reasonably admiring of the way that China has coped with the crisis and, and probably want to regain access quickly to China's domestic market. They want Chinese tourists to come back into Southeast Asia. Um, and, and so I think in a sense, it's quite likely that in the aftermath of COVID, that the ties between Southeast Asia and China are likely in various different ways to deepen. Hmm. I mean, I guess in summary, it sounds like, um, uh, you know, not a sh uh, not a glowing picture of prospects for this part of, re of the region. But but it's also uh, would be the case for almost anybody in the world. So I guess all things being equal, James, are you relatively bullish that uh, the governments of South and Southeast Asia will find a way of pulling themselves and rescuing themselves from the situation? Or do you believe we're going to see some defaults and, and, and some uh, political instabilities that occur because governments aren't able to provide accordingly this is going to be a tough time for everyone there's no getting away from that I mean, this is like in the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis uh, unfortunately when you have um, a crisis that is both a health crisis and an economic crisis then um, everybody hurts from that but I think one of the aftermaths of this is that it will accelerate what we've all been talking about you know, the rise of the, the Asian century um, not so much in Southeast Asia, but parts of Southeast Asia. But if you take Southeast Asia and East Asia as a whole, it's clear that they have performed much better in this crisis than perhaps would have been expected, and certainly much better than the West. And it has revealed some strengths in, um, in the way that Asian governments operate and the way in which their economies operate that I think will continue. So while I, I don't think... Um, you know, anyone would welcome this crisis, and, and in a sense, it's going to be difficult to get through it. Um, there's plenty to be optimistic about in Asia's uh, immediate economic future, simply because the way that this part of the world has coped with the crisis has been far more impressive mm. than many of the places that you would have expected to do well, particularly in, in Europe and in particular in, in North America. So. So I think, um, you know, I think there, there's sort of reason for, for cautious optimism um, on those grounds as well, just looking at the performance of many of these Asian economies during the pandemic. Yeah, lots of moving parts. So, James, we thank you for taking time and sharing your views. And uh, let's uh, plan to catch up in three to four months, see where we are with all of this. Thanks so much. It was a great conversation. I'm delighted to be on. That was my conversation with James Crabtree, author and professor at the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy. Our conversation left me with a few thoughts and concerns. 
If we were to grade the countries on their coronavirus response, some might disagree, but I'd give the markets of Southeast Asia a B average. That compared to a C in Europe and D moving to an F in the United States. It's a showing made all the more impressive based on emerging Asia's relatively meager national and public health care budgets. Fortunately, and relative to many other parts of the world, developing countries in the region have staved off the large-scale COVID outbreaks. For months, epidemiologists have been warning that outbreaks in poor and densely populated areas pose the greatest risk. Brazil, South Africa, and urban India are seeing a mass rise in cases. The cities in Southeast Asia are just as overcrowded and underserved, yet somehow, mysteriously, contagion has been kept in check. Scientists say it's a mystery. While James rightly points out that the economic impact across South and Southeast Asia will be severe, three factors could help see the region through these difficult times, starting with social cohesion. We've witnessed firsthand the willingness of Asia's communities from Tokyo to Hanoi to take the threat of contagion seriously. Governments throughout the region, and in gross contrast to Western counterparts, acted quickly to lock down and enforce the rules of social distancing. With rare exception, hundreds of millions of people did as they were told. Why? Maybe because most feel it's their social obligation. For others, contagious disease isn't a novelty, it's a reality. Proximity to death, go figure, makes people wiser and more cautious. Oddly, these are real-life lessons lost on those in the West who live in a state of relative wealth and privilege. Beyond social cohesion, there's a level of economic determination and resiliency endemic to this part of the world. There's a reason why Asia has experienced a meteoric economic rise in recent decades, thanks in large part to its virtuous workforce. In good times and bad, the Asian work ethic knows no bounds. COVID-19 might pose a setback, but it won't crush the resiliency of its people. The third of three factors is trust in government. To be frank, this has come as a bit of a surprise. The last decade has seen its share of political volatility among countries in the region. Nothing extreme, but enough in places like the Philippines, Malaysia, and Myanmar to elicit new levels of mistrust. Unlike the U.S., where the COVID crisis has amplified political rivalries and further divided a nation, the coronavirus appears to have unified nations in Asia that, for at least the time being, have shelved political differences in defense of the common good. So how will this story end? Hard to say. Some say the pandemic will come in waves and that markets spared to date may find themselves gripped in a crisis a few months hence. Others believe that, come what may, emerging Asia is braced, positively prepared, and entrusted by an unspoken pact between governments and its people. The world needs some good examples of how to behave in a crisis. I say, look to Asia. That brings us to the end of this episode. We thank you for listening. If you're not already a loyal Inside Asia listener, please subscribe today. Search for Inside Asia wherever you download and listen to podcasts. It's entirely free, and there are over 140 episodes to choose from. We cover everything from geopolitics to emerging trends. If you're doing business in Asia, listen to what Inside Asia's guests have to say. You won't find a better business-focused podcast in Asia on Asia. Until next time, this is Steve Stein saying, coming from the outside on Inside Asia.